Hello and welcome to SSI Live. You've long known the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College as the go-to location for issues related to national security and military strategy with an emphasis on geostrategic analysis. SSI conducts strategic research and analysis to support the U.S. Army War College curricula, assist and inform Army, DOD, and U.S. government leadership, and serve as a bridge to the wider strategic community. Now we're bringing you access to SSI analyses, scholars, and guests through this, the SSI Live podcast series. Thanks for joining us. Hello, and welcome to this edition of SSI Live. My name is John Denny, and I'm a research professor of National Security Studies here at the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College. It's Wednesday, July 20th, and today we're recording the fifth in a short series of SSI Live podcasts on a recently published multi-author study entitled China, Europe, and the Pandemic Recession, Beijing's Investments and Transatlantic Security. The COVID-19 pandemic unleashed an immense shock to the global economy. In Europe, gross domestic product fell and unemployment rose. The European Investment Bank recently reported the COVID-19 crisis weakened EU firms, particularly small ones. Those firms were slowly weaning themselves off of government support when the Ukraine war hit. Now these firms are contending with higher energy prices, reduced trade, and potentially higher funding costs as banks try to avoid risk. China might take advantage of the crisis and its aftermath, just as it did in the wake of the global financial crisis a decade ago. As part of its broader national security strategy, China might again use its sovereign wealth fund, government-affiliated companies, and nominally private Chinese firms to provide necessary liquidity and investment in Europe. In doing so, Beijing could take advantage of Europe's economic difficulties to obtain sensitive technologies, build its soft power and influence, and acquire militarily significant infrastructure. To examine these topics further, SSI assembled an interdisciplinary team of experts from the Army War College, private think tanks, and academia. The resulting study, just published and available at the SSI website, or ssi.armyworldcollege.edu, has revealed several reasons for serious concern about predatory economic statecraft in Europe today on the part of China. To mitigate and manage these concerns, the study includes an array of practical policy recommendations for decision makers on both sides of the Atlantic. To launch the study, we're recording a series of podcasts with each of the study contributors. I was the lead author for a chapter on the threats posed by Chinese investment in European infrastructure relevant to U.S. and allied militaries, and so I wanted to provide an overview of that chapter for you today. Let me start most broadly by talking about what we mean by infrastructure. Well, this is generally thought of as the physical and organizational structures and facilities needed for the operation of any society or enterprise. Examples might include transportation systems, water supply systems, sewage management systems, and maybe power and heating generation and distribution systems. To one degree or another, each of these is important from a defense and security perspective. For example, the military typically relies on, at least in part, on the civilian health system for training, some routine medical care, maintaining health care provider standards, and in the event of a large-scale contingency operation or a war. Perhaps more significantly, military personnel also rely, of course, on the food and agriculture sectors of broader society for their own sustenance and nutrition. Now, regarding European infrastructure, whose disruption might impact U.S. and allied defense and security, 
and which might be the object of acquisition or investment by Chinese entities, some sectors matter more than others. So for instance, the ability of military personnel and equipment to move into and through Europe is vital for the defense of NATO, as well as U.S. military operations beyond Europe. Similarly, U.S. and allied military authorities rely on energy sources in Europe to conduct most of their operations in and through the continent. U.S. and allied military forces also rely on European water and wastewater systems when they're operating in or through Europe. But this sector is almost entirely publicly owned, and it's unlikely to be privatized and therefore not really susceptible to Chinese investment. European IT networks, including 5G networks, are also utilized by American military forces when they operate in or through Europe. But that said, debates over 5G have been the subject of extensive transatlantic discussion by policymakers and experts across the, the continent and in North America in recent years. So given this thorough treatment of the 5G issue elsewhere, as well as the success that we've seen in terms of getting all the allies on board to try to keep Chinese companies out of 5G networks for the most part, this study did not devote significant attention to that particular aspect of infrastructure. Now, when we think about where in Europe the infrastructure matters, some countries obviously matter more than others, at least from Washington's perspective. There are, you know, by some counts, as many as 40 different countries in Europe, but some of these aren't home to uh, infrastructure that matters to the U.S. military or allied militaries at all. When it comes to what we think of as militarily relevant infrastructure in Europe, Germany is probably the single most important country from an American perspective, certainly. It's host to the largest number of American military personnel based in Europe. For example, the Kaiserslautern military community in southwest Germany is one of the largest overseas U.S. military communities, comprising 40,000 service members, military dependents, and Department of Defense civilians. Germany is also home to other vital infrastructure elements like Ramstein Air Base, the Launchstuhl Medical Center, and the 7th Army Training Command down in Grafenwehr and Hohenfels. In addition to Germany, Belgium and the Netherlands play especially important roles when it comes to militarily relevant infrastructure. Although they don't host American combat maneuver units, they're both home to infrastructure facilities important for military operations and exercises, U.S. military support units that support that facilitate the movement of uh, military materiel across the continent, and of course, allied command and control units. We can think of, for example, NATO, NATO headquarters in, uh, in Brussels, Belgium. Italy is host to significant U.S. Army, Air Force, and Naval forces, including Aviano Air Base, Caserma Ederly in Vicenza, that's in northern Italy, the Naval Support Activity Naples, and Naval Air Station Sigonella. In some, these and other facilities in Italy are home to about 13,000 military personnel. Poland is playing an increasingly important role as a host nation in recent years, and it's slated to expand its role even further thanks to a bilateral U.S.-Poland basing agreement signed in 2019. Now, there are few U.S. forces based in Poland on a permanent basis at present, but both American and uh, other allied countries like the UK, Croatia, and Romania have sent troops to Poland for rotational deployments in support of NATO's deterrence operations. France no longer hosts U.S. military forces as it did during the 
early years of the Cold War, but it has begun to play an increasingly important home uh, role as home to alternative transshipment options if U.S. forces are unable to use ports elsewhere for exercises or operations. Finally, Greece, as a major gateway to U.S. allies in southeastern Europe, has also been used by U.S. forces in recent years for exercises and deployments, just like France. In particular, the ports of Alexandropoli, Volos, and Thessaloniki have been used by U.S. forces for rotational deployments to Eastern Europe. Greece is also uh, home to the port of Piraeus, which has become the exemplar, really, for Chinese infrastructure investment in Europe. So what is the challenge posed by Chinese investment? Well, through both state-owned enterprises and nominally private entities, China's invested significantly in European infrastructure over the last decade. Now, most observers and experts contend much of this investment is simply motivated by economic interests. Additionally, some of this Chinese investment in European infrastructure occurred under the auspices of the Belt and Road Initiative. Now, this enables China to bring its goods to European markets more efficiently. Moreover, infrastructure asset valuations in Europe were particularly attractive over the last decade in the wake of the European sovereign debt crisis and the Great Recession of the early 2010s. This is something we discussed early on in this podcast series with Mark Duckenfield. European governments at that time were really eager to shed state-owned infrastructure assets, and they found willing investors uh, among the Chinese. Now, although Chinese foreign direct investment into Europe peaked in the 2016-2017 timeframe, European infrastructure continues to attract Chinese investment relative to other sectors. Moreover, we know that Chinese investment in European infrastructure is not driven solely by economic considerations. Given the goals that China has regarding Europe, as we've discussed previously in this podcast series, geopolitics, grand strategy, these underpin China's infrastructure investments as well, incentivizing both the state-owned enterprises and those nominally independent Chinese companies. The challenge is the Chinese investment in infrastructure is often very opaque, even to the government officials in the recipient countries. Now, there are three kinds of risks that we're most concerned about when it comes to Chinese ownership or operation of infrastructure in Europe. First, Chinese ownership or operation of key infrastructure nodes could provide Chinese officials with intelligence collection opportunities. Now, these are not insignificant given the ubiquity of Chinese investment across Europe and the scale and size of Chinese intelligence collection efforts in Europe. Observing the activity at transport nodes used by U.S. military or allied military, for example, at ports, uh, this could tip off Chinese authorities as to uh, pending military operations or activities. Or it could be used by Beijing to provide others, that other states that it's cooperating with, with insights into ongoing or pending operations. The second risk, and this may be somewhat less probable given current geopolitical trends, is that Chinese ownership or operation of infrastructure in Europe could be weaponized in some way to frustrate, limit, or prevent U.S. or NATO use. For example, this could happen through denials of service, uh, the slowing down uh, of provision of services, or even through sabotage. The third risk 
is that Chinese infrastructure investment in Europe could facilitate greater operational reach and influence of the Chinese military itself. Supporting combat vessels through commercial cargo terminals is admittedly not without its challenges. Some of the standards, for example, that these, that these terminals are built with are different when it comes to commercial vessels. But uh, this is nonetheless a problem set that we know Chinese military academics have examined. So what kinds of infrastructure are we most concerned with when it comes to Europe? I outlined a couple of them at the outset, and I've been hinting at a few of them here in my, my comments to you, but let me get more specific. First and foremost, uh, we're concerned with seaports. In Europe, as in the U.S., most seaports are publicly owned. By one estimate, 87% of European ports are owned by central, regional, or municipal government authorities. 7% are held by joint public-private partnerships, and only 6% are privately held. Completely privately held ports are far more common in the UK than on the continent. Unlike airports in Europe, the sovereign debt crisis did not spark privatization in European seaports. However, what we have seen, uh, at least over the last several years, is an increasing trend among European seaports toward port authorities that operate them trying to structure themselves as independent commercial entities. Uh, the, 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 the meaning of this or the impact of this is that most of these port authorities are becoming increasingly driven by financial sustainability, if not outright profitability. So a port typically has many terminals that are designed to handle different kinds of cargo. Some port authorities operate all or some of their terminals, but most port authorities lease or grant concessions to operate their terminals to one or more different port management companies. And in fact, China's home to three of the world's largest 11 port management companies. These three are Hutchison Port Holdings, China Ocean Shipping Company, or Costco, and China Merchants Port, or CMP. These are all based in China. Costco, one of these three, is the world's largest overall shipping company, the third largest container carrier, and the fifth largest terminal port operator. It owns minority stakes in container terminals in Antwerp and Rotterdam. And in nearby Zeebrugge, Belgium, Costco owns 100% of uh, a former APM terminal, that's another terminal management company, and that is the largest and the primary container terminal in Zeebrugge. Most recently, Costco has entered talks to buy a minority stake in Hamburg's Turloort container terminal, which would make it the first non-German operator at that country's main container port. All these ports I've mentioned have been used by U.S. forces in the recent past. Now, U.S. military officials based in Europe, whom we interviewed for this study, uh, at military commands such as UCOM, U.S. Army Europe, and its subordinate commands, they're increasingly aware of expanding Chinese ownership of seaports and other militarily relevant infrastructure on the continent. Moreover, the U.S. military in Europe has a vetting procedure in place currently to ascertain foreign influence in those ports. U.S. military operators on the ground are regularly consulted with regard to prospective Chinese investment in European infrastructure, feeding their concerns and recommendations to counterparts at American embassies, who then attempt to try to influence host nation authorities to, uh, that are in charge of approving these kinds of investments. 
In practice, and on some occasions, this knowledge and the vetting procedures in place have caused U.S. military officials to avoid utilizing certain terminals operated or owned by Chinese companies. Now, from a fiscal perspective, you might think that shifting U.S. forces from one port or one terminal to another uh, because it's been deemed insecure or uh, security risk in some way, that might increase costs. But in fact, these changes create only an administrative burden typically, requiring more man hours. But given how these military shipping contracts and payment terms are structured, shifting from one seaport facility to another typically doesn't add significant contractual costs for the U.S. military. From a capacity perspective, we learned through this study, the research for this study, that U.S. military officials maintain they've got a wide variety of locations to choose from in Western Europe for normal steady-state operations, including the exercises and some of the rotational deployments that I spoke of earlier. According to one official that I spoke with, there are literally scores of European ports that could receive a U.S. armored brigade and all of its equipment. Now, broadly speaking, the ability of that port space is corroborated by independent analyses on port capacity in Europe. We expect this situation to probably continue over the coming decades, given capacity expansions already underway. Of course, this is good news to U.S. military officials who need a variety of options to avoid reliance on terminals or ports operated by Chinese companies. However, in the event of a large-scale contingency crisis requiring significant American force production into Europe, U.S. forces could be challenged to avoid using ports and terminals operated or owned by Chinese firms. In theory, a crisis like this might increase competition for commercial, humanitarian, and military access to European ports, and it might require using most of the ports available to U.S. forces. This could force us to use these ports that the, uh, the Chinese companies or entities are involved with, again, providing uh, Chinese officials with intelligence collection opportunities and, and uh, posing risks, as I suggested earlier. Let me turn now to airports. China's also sought to invest in airports across the continent over the last decade. A handful of high-profile investments, like China's 10% stake in London's Heathrow Airport, uh, the Chinese company's purchase of 82% of Han Airport near Frankfurt, and Alibaba's efforts to uh, build a logistical hub near Liège Airport in Belgium. These stand out as, uh, as examples of Chinese investment activity in this area. But not all Chinese investment in European airports have endured or been very successful. In fact, despite some of the investments that I've just mentioned, the security threat, including in terms of intelligence collection, hindering U.S. or allied military operations, or facilitating greater Chinese military operation activity, operational activity in Europe, remains really quite minimal. This is primarily because you, most U.S. and allied defense establishments rely on military air bases, which typically remain in government control. Now, what about energy and other utilities? Although NATO allies have an extensive pipeline system for petroleum resources for military forces and facilities, electricity needs are met almost entirely through the civilian electrical grid. From a subsector perspective, Chinese entities have invested heavily in European fossil fuel plants, in renewables, in nuclear, and in power distribution. 
Geographically speaking, most Chinese investment in the energy sector in Europe has focused on the larger, wealthier countries like France, Germany, and the UK. However, Chinese energy sector investment has also been rising in Southern Europe, especially in Portugal and Greece, where pressure to reduce debt over the last decade compelled and continues to compel sales or partial sales of state-owned energy infrastructure assets. China's also been active in the renewable subsector. In August 2020, for example, a Chinese firm acquired 13 solar power stations in Spain with a total generating capacity of just over 500 megawatts. That's enough to power roughly half a million homes. In Poland, meanwhile, the government of Warsaw has agreed to pay for most of the infrastructure necessary to uh, allow the expansion of the U.S. military presence there. But what's not known is precisely how Poland will handle the development of the surrounding infrastructure necessary to support that expansion. So, for example, the existing electrical grid, water and sewer lines, roads and rails, these are all insufficient to support the planned growth. Polish officials have told the U.S. that if Chinese firms bid on these tenders, there's a high likelihood they'll be the lowest bidder and therefore stand a pretty good chance of winning that kind of work. Now, even though U.S. and European officials have become increasingly aware of and wary of Chinese investment in European uh, energy and transport infrastructure like I've just been discussing, Chinese entities have attempted to adapt to the shifting landscape in Europe. So, for example, Chinese entities today appear to be using third-party companies to expand ownership stakes, including in militarily relevant infrastructure. This allows them to essentially hide their investment activity. In addition to concealing Beijing's hand through minority stakes in what are ostensibly European companies, Chinese entities often base themselves in or route investment activity through seemingly more benign locations like the Cayman Islands. Now, the Caymans are an overseas British territory, but when investment activity in an entity in the British Home Isles appears to originate from the Caymans, it's not technically considered foreign direct investment. And so uh, the operative investment screening tools are uh, infrequently triggered or used. So what kind of mitigating elements or mitigating factors are there currently? Well, across Europe, Chinese investment in energy and transport infrastructure is increasingly viewed with a jaundiced eye, as I've mentioned. This reflects the broader trends regarding increasing European sensitivity to Chinese economic activity in Europe that I spoke of in an earlier podcast. In many cases, European officials are reluctant to permit additional acquisitions or the expansion of additional, or the expansion of existing infrastructure investments. Elsewhere, in some cases, Chinese investors in European infrastructure have simply failed to deliver on contractual arrangements. Uh, for example, Everbright, the Chinese company, its contract to operate the Tirana airport in Albania required the Chinese to invest in the airport by expanding it, but they refused to do so, leading to a very confrontational situation. This gives Chinese firms, frankly, a bad name. So examples such as these indicate that the Chinese approach in Europe is in many respects unrefined and sometimes inconsistent. Now, this may provide some mitigation, but neither the U.S. nor Europe can afford to rely solely on Chinese mistakes. What's to be done about these risks and how do we mitigate the greatest challenges posed by Chinese investment in European infrastructure? 
Well, stay tuned and listen to the last of the podcast in this short series coming up in a few weeks where we'll dive into some of the recommendations contained in the study that uh, this podcast series is based upon. You can find that just released study that I've been discussing with you today entitled China, Europe, and the Pandemic Recession, Beijing's Investments in Transatlantic Security at ssi.armyworldcollege.edu. Please join us for future episodes of this short series here at SSI Live. In our next episode, we'll dig into the risks posed by Chinese investment activity in sensitive or dual-use European technology firms relevant to military capabilities. I hope you'll join us. You can now find SSI Live on TuneIn Radio and on popular podcast directories like Stitcher and at the iTunes Store. If you have any comments on our podcasts, thoughts on what you'd like to see addressed, or a response to something you heard here at SSI Live, please go to our website. That's ssi.armywarcollege.edu. Find me, John Denny, in the staff directory, and send me an email. I look forward to hearing from you. For the SSI Live podcast series, I'm John Denny. Thanks for listening.